Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And we are entering into part two of our two-part episode on Yosemite and James Hutchings. And in part one of this, uh, we talked about the park a little bit, the park of Yosemite as we know it today. We also talked about its history in terms of when white men first saw it uh, and how James Hutchings started to really build an identity and a life completely around promoting this piece of land. And we're going to jump right in on this second part uh, in in the, the continuity of the story. So we highly recommend that you listen to part one first, or you might be a little bit confused. You will not have context for what we are talking about. So, and in addition to the periodical that we talked about last time, Hutchings also wrote the books Scenes of Wonder and Curiosity in California, A Tourist's Guide to the Yosemite Valley, which published in 1862, and then later In the Heart of the Sierras, which was published in 1888. As with his magazine, these books feature some really fantastic illustrations. And one of the things that's... uh quite fun about Hutchings writing is that he really was not shy about writing about how affecting this landscape could be. So in Scenes of Wonder and Curiosity, he wrote the following about the feeling that one would get at the end of the day, at the end of a day spent in Yosemite. And he says, quote, as we sit in the stillness and twilight of evening, thinking over and conversing about the wondrous scenes our eyes have looked upon this day, or listen in silence to the deep music of the distant waterfalls, our hearts seem to be full to overflowing with a sense of the grandeur, wildness, beauty, and profoundness to be felt and enjoyed when communing with the glorious works of nature. In the opening of In the Heart of the Sierras, Hutchings borrows quotes from a wide range of people about Yosemite to establish the case that it's truly a marvel. Everyone from geologists to Ralph Waldo Emerson weighs in on these introductory pages. They all praise the astonishing nature of the beauty that can be found there. The book then goes on to relate the history of Yosemite and how it was, quote, discovered by white men, how the gold rush planted the seed of resentment with the native population, and how the Mariposa War began. And uh, you'll remember James Savage, who was the man that led the Mariposa Battalion, uh, and Hutchings' writing about him is really interesting indeed, because according to the Hutchings' account, Savage took wives, yes, that was plural with an S at the end, from the Native Americans in the hopes that doing so would prevent attacks on his home and business. And also in the Hutchings version, one of uh, Savage's squaws, as they are called in this in this book, told him ahead of time that an attack on the mining town was being planned by a group of Native American men. A few years into their marriage in 1864, James and Elvira purchased the Upper Hotel for $400. Hutchings had been hoping to do this for a long time beforehand because of issues that the hotel had had from the beginning. But it took him a little while to get the finances together to actually buy it. The existing hotel was still pretty utilitarian at best. I mean, we talked last time about how it was basically a frame with some sheets, <laughs> but permanent. Uh, but James and Elvira spruced it up a bit and opened it uh, as the Hutchings House. 
And James would later write of the hotel's issues and his eventual acquisition of it also in the heart of the Sierras. And in that he wrote, quote, owing to a heavy indebtedness incurred in building the hotel and the lack of success attending the first Fourth of July party given for which extensive preparations had been made and from which much had been expected, its projectors and builders, unable to meet their obligations, assigned it to creditors for their protection. The following two years, it was leased to Mr. Charles Peck, then to Mr. P. Longhurst, after which it was either let temporarily or remained closed until purchased by the writer in 1864. The couple eventually added on to the existing structure, including a large common room known as the Big Tree Room, so named because it had been constructed around a cedar tree that was 175 feet or uh, 53 meters tall. This had started with as a sitting room with a dirt floor, but it was later improved and floored and became this dining room for people before it was eventually made into a parlor. Yeah, there are some fantastic pictures of James and Elvira sitting in this room, and they're on either side of the tree trunk, and it's massive, so they may as well sort of be very far apart in different places. <laughs> um, but you can find pictures of those online, and we'll try to link some in the show notes. The same year that the Hutchings purchased that hotel, they also had their first child, Florence Hutchings. She would later go by Flo, sometimes Floy, and even Flora. And Florence was the first white child born in Yosemite on August 23rd of 1864. And Flo loved the outdoors. She was quite a tomboy, and she often complained that she had not been born a boy. While initially the whole family was involved in running the hotel, eventually it was Elvira's mother, Florantha T. Sprout, who really kept things running, as James was really busy working to be basically the ambassador of Yosemite, and Elvira immersed herself in her interests in music and botany. Since Florantha had experience running a boarding house, running a lodge came pretty naturally to her. It was basically an extension of what she was already used to doing. Yeah, if you'll recall from the first episode, it was it was at her boarding house that James actually met Elvira. So uh, she had been doing that in San Francisco for quite a time before they they were at Yosemite. And from the beginning of the hotel's life as Hutchings House, there were once again serious financial and legal problems. On June 30th of 1864, President Abraham Lincoln signed an act of Congress that transferred ownership of Yosemite Valley and the Mariposa Grove of giant sequoias to the state of California. That transfer was a land grant to the state that was not to be settled, which meant that the property that the Hutchings had purchased just two months before this was not considered a legal claim. This had all come about because California Senator John Connis had introduced the land grant to Congress with the goal of conserving the land. He and like-minded thinkers of the day didn't want Yosemite to become like Niagara Falls, which had been overrun with tourist development. Congress, quite busy at the time with the Civil War, was rather quick to go forward with the Yosemite grant, probably so they could move on to the more pressing business that they had at hand. The fact that there were property owners in Yosemite already had not really been disclosed by Connus when he was questioned about this whole land grant. And that lack of disclosure is going to play a big part in things coming up. But before we get to all of that, let's pause really quickly for a brief word from one of our fantastic sponsors. So to get back into our story, Hutchings initially was really pretty excited about the land grant. He thought like, yay, we're going to preserve this land that I love so much. But that was before it was made plain to him that his hotel did not fit into the state legislature's plans. 
It was seen instead by some as a case of the Hutchings wanting to turn a profit off of the natural beauty of the valley, rather than as the home base of Yosemite's ambassadors, which is how Hutchings saw it. And in addition to the hotel, James Hutchings had also filed a preemption claim on a large land parcel that up to that point was just awaiting a survey team. And the state said that that was invalid as well. For the next decade, a bitter battle played out between Hutchings and the state government. Initially, after the land transfer, the state told James and Elvira that they'd need to sign a lease for the hotel since the state owned the land. But Hutchings fought the state. And Hutchings was not the only person who had a land claim in Yosemite. Another man, James C. Lamone, uh, had built a cabin there as well. And he was in the same boat as Hutchings, and he also fought the state. Lamone had actually helped build the upper hotel when it was initially constructed. And the year after it was completed, he made a claim on the upper end of the valley and established a garden and an orchard in addition to constructing a little log cabin there. Both Hutchings and Lamone were notified by the Board of Yosemite Commissioners appointed by the state that they would need to lease their property from the state by a given deadline or they'd have to leave. And both men turned down those options. And according to Hutchings, when he spoke with a Senator Pomeroy of Kansas, who served on the United States Committee of Public Lands, that is when it came to light that Connors had claimed that the land had no settlers. Hutchings felt that this really proved that he should have had protected rights as a land claimant. Otherwise, why would that information have been withheld? Throughout all of this legal wrangling, there were, of course, huge gaps in terms of anything happening. Committees would recess or other delays would come up in the government schedule. And throughout it all, Hutchings occupied his time by promoting Yosemite, both in writing and in giving lectures. He claimed to give, quote, 87 illustrated lectures on Yosemite, sometimes to audiences of over 3,000. He did so, he claimed, for three reasons. To keep himself busy, to make a little money, and to bring more attention to, quote, the marvelous grandeur of the scenery. In July of 1871, the California Supreme Court issued the following ruling in another land claim case. Quote, if a qualified preemptioner enter upon a portion of the public domain with the intention to preempt the same and performs all the acts necessary to perfect his preemptive right, except the payment of the purchase price, the government may nevertheless at any time before the price is actually paid or tendered, devote the land to another purpose and thereby wholly defeat the right of preemption. So basically they're saying even if someone is trying to buy a piece of land, for example, James Hutchings claimed a big land parcel that had not yet been surveyed. And so that deal was not yet done. If they were making that claim, but they hadn't paid for it and the state came in and wanted to do something else, as long as the money hadn't changed hands, there was nothing to be done for it. That judgment was appealed to the United States Supreme Court, but the ruling was upheld. Hutchings suggests in his writing about all of this that he that if he had made a land claim in a less beautiful place, the government never would have gone to all this trouble. Yeah, he really felt like at the at the end of the day, because Yosemite was so spectacular, it was of more interest to the state than if it had been like a, a park that was not so filled with wonders. Uh, and in 1874, the state of California finally paid out a $24,000 settlement to the Hutchings for their land and hotel. Lamone received $12,000. And as this tale develops in Hutchings' writing, 
he makes it quite clear that he actually thinks that the state treated him relatively well, but that the blame should sit squarely with Senator John Connors and his deception that started all of this trouble. The Hutchings family finally left their hotel behind and moved to San Francisco. Not long after they settled in San Francisco, James and Elvira divorced. James, however, continued to live with Elvira's mother, as did the couple's children. And four years later, James remarried. His new wife, Augusta Sweetland, had been their next-door neighbor. Yeah, Elvira kind of took off to do her own thing. Uh, so that's why James stayed with the family and her and Elvira's mother. Uh, and during that decade of turmoil that they had been undergoing, the Hutchings also became entwined with the life of a man who uh, also had a long-term relationship with Yosemite Valley, and in many ways he is more famous in that. Uh, in 1869, the pair hired a Scotsman named John Muir to uh, build and run a sawmill on their property. And there was tension from the start between the two men. Each of them felt as though he was the expert and the spokesperson for Yosemite. And while Hutchings had, at that point, two decades of writing on the matter as his credentials, whereas Muir had only been in the United States, I think like a year and a half at that point, people really responded to Muir. And that's why he kind of garnered a great deal of attention. He is in most of the historical pictures of Yosemite that have people yeah. them that I found. Like I was hoping to find a picture of Hutchings or a picture of Hutchings in Yosemite for our podcasts on our website and all that. Nope. He's never the one in the picture. <laughs> there are some, but they're not like the ones that are in always public domain. But yeah, Muir is is really like the one that history has eventually made the Yosemite guy. Yeah. And he could easily be a podcast subject on his own. Probably he will at some point. But one of the things to consider about this clash between the two men is their fundamental differences in how they approached the subject of Yosemite. Hutchings saw the beauty of the valley as a thing that could be shared, like a shared experience that would bring people together. Muir, sometimes touted as something of a wilderness apostle, was a lot more about more personal, passionate, individual connection to the land rather than something to be shared with a group. Yeah, and that that standpoint was a little bit more in line with the modern thinking of the time. So that's why he kind of had a great appeal to a lot of people. Uh, Yosemite, though, would once again call Hutchings back. But before we talk about that, we're going to pause one more time and have a, a word from one of our fantastic sponsors. In 1880, James Hutchings returned once again to Yosemite. The administrators of the Yosemite and Mariposa Grove land grant had been removed from their position by the state's 1878-1879 Constitutional Convention, uh, as had the guardian of Yosemite. And James Hutchings was appointed to fill that empty guardian position. But his time on the job didn't go very well. He didn't get along with people. He could be really tactless. So he was let go after four years. Yeah, he was very direct. He did not hold anything back. Uh, not the easiest person to get along with, even though he felt he was very clear-headed and just telling things like they were. Uh, but early on in James Hutchings' time as administrator, uh, as guardian of Yosemite, his daughter Flo died there. And the young woman was leading a group of hikers in the area. But what happened to cause her death has been accounted 
in pretty wildly different ways. Uh, in John Weir's writing about the incident, because she was friends with him, she had climbed a rock to pick ferns for the group that she was leading when she slipped and fell into an adjacent stream and then caught a chill and became ill and died soon after. But other accounts say that she was struck by a boulder on the ledge trail. But in either case, she died very young. She was only 17 when she passed, and she was buried in the Yosemite Cemetery, where people still go and visit her gravesite. James Hutchings died in 1902. He was in Yosemite at the time, on vacation with his third wife, Emily, when they were involved in a wagon accident. And like Flo, James was buried in Yosemite Cemetery. In a a digitized scan of a copy of In the Heart of the Sierras that I was looking at, I stumbled across this tiny obituary clipping that some owner of the book appears to have pasted onto one of the early pages. And since it's a clipping, it doesn't include the original sourcing. But it's interesting in that it characterizes Hutchings as really a sort of father to Yosemite tourism. It reads, Discoverer of Yosemite Dead. J.M. Hutchings, who found the famous valley, killed there by accident. San Francisco, November 2nd. Well, the year 1902 is handwritten in. J.M. Hutchings, who discovered the Yosemite Valley and opened it for tourists, was killed on Friday night by his team going over the grade on his way into the famous valley. Mr. Hutchings was nearly 90 years old and until recently spent every winter in the Yosemite. He had kept this season the Calaveras Big Trees Hotel. So... This is interesting, one, in that it it doesn't get all the facts right. He didn't discover Yosemite. Uh, But while Hutchings today doesn't really get recognition as Yosemite's ambassador on the level that John Weir does, during his lifetime, he was clearly seen that way by at least some people, certainly enough to make his obituary seem like he was the guy everyone associated with that area. Just for the sake of including a lovely find that came up in research, Uh, Below that pasted obituary is handwritten, I remember meeting and talking with Mr. Hutchings in the Yosemite Valley at the time of my visit in 1890. We had just arrived. My conversation with him was in the big tree room pictured opposite page 349. Uh, Holly couldn't quite make out the signature, but it is dated November 5th of 1902. So it seems like uh, it's probably the person who cut out and pasted that clipping into the book. Yeah, it was just one of those wonderful things that you kind of stumble across in research and it it gives an interesting piece of color to who James Hutchings was. Uh, and as for uh, Hutchings' first wife, Elvira, her paintings of Yosemite actually gained her a certain degree of fame and praise. And she continued to paint images of the park's incredible landscapes even after she and James split, although unfortunately most of her work was lost in a fire in 1906. She eventually moved to Vermont to be with her daughter Gertrude, and she died there in 1917. Though the Yosemite land grant to set aside the land and protect it from development was really the first of its kind in the United States, Yosemite was not the first national park. Remember, we got into this topic because it seemed like literally everyone was asking us to talk about the founding of the national parks. Uh, that honor actually goes to Yellowstone, which was made a national park in 1872. Yosemite wasn't made a national park until 1890. The act creating the National Park Service was signed by President Woodrow Wilson on August 25th of 1916, so much later than there were actual parks established. Yep. Uh, and Yosemite was made a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 1984. Today, the Hutchings House is gone, as is the little village that kind of grew up in the area. The allowed development actually moved to another site. 
The base of the tree from the big tree room remains, though, and you can drive right by it. There are also some markers on the ground where the corners of the big tree room used to be. And visitors now have their choice of lodging in the park. So not that that one kind of janky hotel that needed lots of help. But now there are some really amazing places to stay there. Uh, it, the park has eight hotels and four campgrounds. So a far cry from that two-story windowless sheets instead of walls hotel that the Hutchings bought in 1864. So that is our uh, our little response to the many listener requests for a National Park Service episode. So happy 100th birthday, National Park Service in August. We're so glad you're here. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, It's very, very cool. There are actually lots of national parks that uh, that are related to various podcasts that we talk about uh, that we've done in the past. Like we we don't always mention them because there are a lot. Uh, and if we try to mention every single site that uh, that goes along with something, it will be this never-ending list of places to visit. But uh, the National Park Service website has information on so many places you can visit. Yeah. And for listener mail, I have a tie-in postcard that is from uh, Fort Marion National Monument at St. Augustine, Florida. And it's uh, the United States Department of the Interior National Park Service is the cute, cute thing. And it is from our listener, Alice. She says, hi, Holly and Tracy. I'm a big fan of the show. I've been listening for just a few months, but I love learning more every day because of you. I'm chaperoning a group of teenage Girl Scouts on a travel camp to St. Augustine. Oh, Alice, bless you, because that takes patience I would not have. Uh, the city is steeped in history and celebrated its 450th anniversary last year. When we visited the... uh Castillo de San Marcos, I saw this postcard and I thought of you. Definitely worth a visit next time you're in the Sunshine State. Thanks for the podcast. Thank you so much, Alice. You accidentally timed such an absolutely perfect uh, postcard for uh, when I was prepping this episode. So I appreciate it. And again, I I always say it, but I, I always want to say it. I'm so grateful every time someone stops in the middle of their vacation and mails us something. That's amazing and kind. It's so thoughtful. Yeah, it's so sweet. <laughs> if you would like to reach us, you can do so at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also at Facebook.com slash Missed in History, on Twitter at Missed in History, on Instagram at Missed in History, uh, on Tumblr as Missed in History. We're basically Missed in History everywhere on social media. Uh, if you would like to visit our parent site and maybe do a little more research into the National Park Service, you can go there, HowStuffWorks.com, type in National Park Service in the search bar, you will get all all kinds of information about the National Park Service. If you would like to visit Tracy and me online, you can do that at mistinhistory.com where we have every episode of the show that has ever existed, show notes for every show that Tracy and I have worked on, and occasionally other little goodies and tidbits. So we encourage you, come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 